Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this double episode of the podcast, I'm your host, Julia Slattery, and we're coming to you from the Dig South Conference in Charleston, South Carolina. Dig South is the South's largest annual tech conference. It brings together more than 2,500 people who are building digital products that are changing the way people live, work, and play. We'll be talking with a number of those people on this episode, which we're breaking up into two parts because of the sheer volume of content that we recorded. Charleston is just the first stop on the Innovation Engine Spring 2018 North American Tour. For our next stop, we'll be podcasting from the floor of Collision in New Orleans. Collision is a collection of numerous tech conferences all under one roof. And like with Ditch South, we'll have a prime spot on the floor from which to talk with a number of tech leaders and luminaries. But that's next time. We still have two full episodes worth of Ditch South content to bring you, including conversations with leaders from Under Armour, Snag a Job, Entrepreneur Magazine, and many others. So without further ado, here are the interviews from day one at Dig South, starting with Soon Yu, author of Iconic Advantage. Soon Yu is an international speaker and best-selling author on innovation and design who has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Entrepreneur Magazine, and New York Times. His book, Iconic Advantage, challenges businesses from Fortune 500 to venture-backed startups to refocus their innovation priorities on building greater iconicity and offers deeper insights on establishing timeless distinction and relevance. He regularly consults business leaders on developing meaningful iconic signature elements, signature moments, and signature communication. All right, so we're here at Ditch South with Soon Yu, and you opened the entire conference with a keynote called How Stinky Is Your Cheese. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the talk was really focused on the idea that I work with a lot of companies and they're all trying to stand out, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies think, hey, especially startups, uh, well, I can win by being the first out to market. I can win by having the biggest scale. And, or maybe I can win by having the best technology or algorithm or having more MIPS than somebody else. And generally what I tell people is not that you shouldn't pursue those things. Obviously, if you can win on those things, that's great, but it's not enough. And oftentimes what I find is that uh, people that win on those things might win in the beginning of those things, but uh, the second competitor coming out next actually somehow usurps them and wins. And that's because they created what I call stinkier cheese. And my analogy is this. It isn't always the biggest or baddest or fastest mousetrap that gets the mice. It's often the one with the stinkiest cheese. So your goal is to create stinky cheese. Cheese that people smell and that's really highly relevant to them. So stinky in this case is not necessarily a negative thing. Well, think blue cheese. <laughs> Fair, yeah, that is a good, good analogy. So soon, what are some things that you've seen product companies, um, you know, kind of fail at over and over again? What are some common mistakes that you've seen? Yeah, oh, lots. <laughs> you said this is a short podcast. Okay, sorry. No, um, one of the big ones that I've seen is that they continually change uh, marketing campaigns and messages and logos and IDs. And at some point, we kind of, you know, lose track of why did we buy into this um, franchise or this brand early on? And they, they think that they are evolving um, with the consumers. And in reality, I think what they're doing is creating confusion. I think it's more important to be grounded in some of the things that you're known best for and what you're loved for. But obviously... Uh, protect those things because they, you know, what what I call create familiarity and then breeds trust, but married it up with uh, new uh, stories, uh, new innovation, and also new design. And it's that ability to sort of marry the old with the new that keeps you timelessly relevant. And I see so many companies where, and it's natural, like people hire people in that have, you know, are new to the company and they kind of want to make their mark in the company. And when they want to do that, oftentimes they just want to throw out everything else that somebody else had done that was great. And I, I think there's a big danger in, in throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you are also upstairs signing a couple books. Your book is called Iconic Advantage. Is this something that you talk about in the book? Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, that's exactly what I talk about. I talk about sort of there are three qualities that all these iconic 
products, franchises, and services all share. And really simply, it's um, having something distinctive or memorable uh, that they're known for. Then whatever that distinctive relevant element is, they uh, that element is highly relevant uh, to the audience. So that distinction is highly relevant. And the goal is to make sure that that distinction uh, that's relevant stays relevant over time. Mm-hmm. And the last quality is um, people are recognized for that distinctive relevance. And so this idea of being recognized and distinctive and relevant, if you combine those three and have longevity, you eventually become the uh, standard bearer for that distinctive relevance. And through becoming a standard bearer over time, you eventually become iconic. And that's sort of the goal. And so I was just talking about uh, your question earlier, Jesse, was this idea of uh, stinky cheese. And the key is being relevant, and that creates what I call noticing power or distinction, but then the ability to keep it um, over time, and that, that's the ability to infuse newness with what you are known for. Yeah. Can you give us some examples of some companies you've seen that have great uh, iconic, I- iconic advantage? Sure, I'll give you guys a test, all right? And then maybe sure. you guys can, you know, <laughs> based on this test, see whether or not uh, this works. So if I said to you, um, sports shoe with an air pocket in the sole, who would you think of? Nike. Nike. Okay, good. I'll, I'll stay with shoes for a second. Jesse, this is a little bit harder for you, but may, maybe Julia can get this one. If I said high heel shoes, red bottoms. Louboutin. Yep. I know Louboutin. That oh, you, oh, Jesse. Oh, wait, hey, oh, you are wearing them. Okay, Jesse, those are nice. <laughs> right. You have nice ankles, no, Jesse. Yes, yeah, no one can validate what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I have a wife. Yes, I know. I know okay. all too well. I, I said happy mouse ears. Mickey Mouse. Mouse. Disney, yeah, Yeah, exactly. Okay, here's another one. If I said a beer bottle with a lime in the neck. Corona. Corona, Corona. you guys are really, really good. I'm feeling good. Feeling extremely good. (laughs) So these are all what I call iconic signatures and and iconic elements that actually, so if you think about it, let's go back to Corona. This lime in the neck, right? It actually represents one, a very memorable part, a distinctive element. So it creates great noticing power. But it's also highly relevant because when you think about that lime with the yellow uh, beer and that silhouette, you're thinking about vacation. You're thinking about, you know, getting outside of work. And it's sort of the beach slash vacation beer. And so that lime in the neck is actually a shortcut that and an icon that you'll always remember for their key point of difference, which was they are the beer that you basically party and 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 go on vacation with. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. It's a feel-good, noticeable thing. And you know, I wouldn't have picked the lime as the distinctive quality of Corona because it doesn't seem like it's not a part of their beer. It's something you have to add in, but they really capitalized on that and turned it into. You can't serve a Corona without a lime. That's exactly. Right. That's that's exactly right. That's that, exactly right. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's naked without a lime. Exactly. Yeah. yeah you don't want right. it at that point. Exactly. Yep. So are there any companies you're working with or that you've seen recently that you're really excited about that you think they've got this, you know, iconic advantage, uh, you know, in their DNA and they're, they're going to go amazing places? Yeah. You know, quite a few companies. I, um, there's one I worked with recently. That's um, marrying the old with the new, and that's really important, right? And so uh, it's actually Norton LifeLock. Uh, They are actually known for security. They're very iconic Mm -hmm. for that. And what they've done is actually taking uh, the antivirus uh, heritage and the security heritage and the privacy heritage, and now they're marrying it with a infusion of some new energy with LifeLock, which is all about identity theft, right? Mm -hmm. And when you marry those two up, you get a unbeatable brand in the space of security. So to me, that's a great uh, application of this idea of taking what's best about the old and familiar with the old and marrying it and infusing it with some uh, energy and newness. Um, so that's a really uh, a prime example of doing that. We're watching this money machine and I'm tempted to go in there and grab all the money that's uh, being tornadoed around that person. Yeah. Get some Corona money for <laughs> yeah, exactly. later. Exactly. Well, it makes it memorable here, right? <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Great. Well, that's the stinky cheese we'll be looking for in the grocery store. Exactly. Coming exactly. up. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, soon, uh, any kind of, uh, you know, last uh, thoughts to impart to, you know, our friends, colleagues, clients around how to be memorable, how to have iconic advantage and how to stand out among all their sure. competitors. You know, tech is very competitive and yeah. uh, a lot of people do kind of the same things and 
focused on value proposition. How, how would you kind of um, you know, give them some parting words to stand out and, and be relevant? So I just, I'll start very simply, like just on a very personal level. Um, and it's very human nature to either try to be who you're not or try to like chase something new because you're kind of tired of who you are, right? And it's kind of the same, or actually focus on, quite frankly, the areas that you're not as strong in. And a good example is we've all gotten performance reviews and it's natural. What do you gravitate? You gravitate on the 10 or 20% of what's missing, right? Mm -hmm. Versus on the 20 to 30% where you're kicking some behind, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. What I say is double down where you're kicking behind, okay? Triple down, become known for that. So on a personal level, that's exactly how you actually become signature and become iconic. Same thing applies in the business. Look at what you're known for, what you're really strong on. Find and be more specific about it. You know, if it seems platitudinal, then you're probably too broad. Narrow the scope and be known for, okay, let's say you were an expert at artificial intelligence. Okay, that's pretty broad. Mm -hmm. But if you said, I'm an artificial, I'm an expert at artificial intelligence for cats, I'm like, okay, now you're talking. (laughs) I think you could be a conic for the cat AI person, you know, Mm -hmm. right? So um, that's kind of what I mean is like, find an area niche, start there, okay? Double down. And it's more important to be loved by 100 people, be indispensable for 100 people than to be known by 10,000 people, okay? Find that audience. And with today's social media and digital, they'll become the bullhorn platform to talk about why they can't live without you. Yeah. Absolutely. great advice. So speaking of social media, where can people find you on social media? Sure. um, They can find me at Twitter at at SoonSpeaks or visit my website at SoonYou.com. Very nice. And that's S-O-O-N-Y-U.com. Yep. Or at IconicAdvantage.com. Oh, great. Even yeah. better. Cool. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank so you, Julia. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, great program. And let's get into that money machine and buy some Coronas. Man. Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Megan Open is head of the content house at Under Armour. An award-winning creative director and live action director, Meg has spent more than 18 years working with major broadcast and sports clients, including Under Armour, Red Bull, Google, the NBA, MLB, PGA, and NASCAR, as well as clients like Dove Beauty, Gatorade, Sprite, ESPN, Delta Airlines, Home Depot, Regal Cinemas, Chick-fil-A, and Yahoo Sports. All right, so we are here at Digi South with Megan Open from Under Armour. You recently spoke earlier today. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were speaking about? Yeah, so my team, I'm head of content and executive producer for Under Armour's Content House. And so my team and I produce and create editorial, endemic, and social digitally focused um, storytelling for the brand. Love it. Awesome. And what does that entail exactly? Yeah, so we play in a lot of sandboxes. We Mm -hmm. take a look at how stories for the brand can be told through photography, through video, through AR, VR, motion graphics, um, and then through editorial and endemic plays as well. Um, My team doesn't necessarily handle the advertising work, so that's kind of done in a different unit, but all the storytelling that we do kind of builds and supplements around that and plays in concert with with that space. Absolutely, yeah. And and to follow up with that, when you're deciding to build... um, the story. Do you have in mind um, the audience? Um, do you focus on the audience first and then build the story around it? 100%. So I'm um, I'm a little bit of a unicorn creative. And what I mean by that is I'm somebody that's very left and right brain driven. I understand the importance of data and KPIs and audiences And I'm really, really passionate about the idea of reverse engineering, kind of the field of dreams mentality. If you build it, they will come. But not understanding your audience is a little bit like, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, is anybody going to see it or hear it? You can produce the most beautiful piece of creative or the most inspirational story, but if nobody's there to see it, it's completely useless and it doesn't serve the brand or the client. Yeah, that that is so... um... I feel like we're aligned because that's very much that we build software if they're not going to use it and, you know, we haven't developed it really with the user in mind. It's a similar, you know, issue. It's like you're just building something. So you're just creating something if, if it's not really set up with the user. The two videos that you showed um, with the bobsled, um, and the Olympic bobsledders, and then also the... Um, what was the other one? The speed skate speed video. Skate. Yeah. So th- th- it was so mesmerizing. And, you know, can you tell me a little bit of how you kind of came up with that idea? Or 
one of them, I guess. Sure, yeah. Um, I, I think they both have interest and power in different spaces. Uh, the Speedscape video was originally a, a PR team ask. Under Armour had developed a new innovation in suit technology for the U.S. Speedscape team and their journey to the Olympics this year. And originally the ask was, you know, we need to put a, a kit together. We need imagery. We need a video. Can you shoot the suit in 360 and can you send your team out to do some stills around it? And I said, we can. I said, but we can offer you a lot more. Why don't we take a look at this a little bit of a different way? And, and this is something that either clients or brands love or they really dislike when I come in and say, can we just turn the box over and maybe take a look at it in this space? Um, I'm super passionate about creating emotional stories, about creating stories that really resonate with people in different spaces and that can be used in a multifaceted playground. So shooting a suit in 360 achieves one purpose, but maybe it's not terribly useful to the rest of the organization who also want to talk about that story. Where am I supposed to be? So I asked the team, I said, okay, tell me a little bit about the suit. Why is it so innovative? What is it doing for the brand? What is the story that's behind it? And they were using phrases like rebirth and breaking through and heat and performance and exceptional innovation. And I said, okay, all of those are adjectives that we can build a really interesting narrative around. And as we kind of talked through it, I was saying, okay, what, what if we told a story about the ice giving birth to an ice man? And as that ice, you know, forms up and it, it you know, rebirth from the ice, the ice gives birth to the man, you know, breaking out, then the skater breaks out of the ice. You see all the different product features um, and, and you figure out kind of what that suit is doing for the skater and how it allows the skater to, to perform at a different level. Ultimately, Under Armour's brand ethos is Under Armour makes you better, you know? And so how is it that the, this suit is making athletes better? And that's kind of how the narrative started. And then we took a look at it and said, okay, you can, you can share this endemically. You can put it on social. You can put it in the digital space. And then you can share it out to partners. You can give it to the U.S. Speedskate. And you can just watch that grow. And you can get so much more runway out of that kind of storytelling than you can if you took kind of the easy traditional, traditional approach. approach. Yeah. yeah, totally. Absolutely. Uh, and you mentioned VR and AR earlier. How, and the digital media landscape itself has been changing so much, even in the past few years. How have you all been reacting to that? I think, you know, you, you heard me talk in, in the presentation earlier about how, how important innovation is for Under Armour as a brand. And that is innovation in the product development space, in the athlete space, in the performance space, in the storytelling space. I think when I look back at, I've, I've been a producer and a director for almost 22 years when I started and kind of how the universe was in a linear space and it was in a very traditional space and kind of how that's developed how consumer viewing patterns have changed. People are cutting the cord. They're interested in different things. Mm -hmm. There's different sandboxes for people to play in. And then there's a different tension span at different points in the day. You know, you wake up, you have whatever your consumer journey is and whatever content you need in those different spaces is going to be different hour by hour on that wheel. Sometimes people need to be educated. Sometimes people need to be entertained. Sometimes people need to be wowed. And sometimes people want to feel like they're in, they, they've immersed themselves into a new experience. And I think the AR and the VR world is the place where you can really make somebody feel like they are part of a brand in a different way because it's touching them in a different space. Mm -hmm. And where can people find you online if they want to follow your work? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, you can find me on my website, so meganopen.com, M-E-G-A-N-O-E. -E. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, thanks thank for you, having Megan. me. I appreciate it. Of course. Jason Pfeiffer is the editor-in-chief at Entrepreneur Magazine. He's previously been an editor at Fast Company and Men's Health, and his writing has appeared in New York Magazine, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and many more. He stopped by the booth to talk about storytelling and the future of digital and print journalism. Okay, great. Well, we're here at Digi South with Jason Pfeiffer of Entrepreneur Magazine. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Oh, you pronounce it Digi South. Is that what it is, or is it Dig South? So I've heard Dig South, but personally, I've been dig? calling it Dig because you think that it's short for Digiridoo? digital. Ah, uh, Digiridoo is more fun, yeah. man. No, you're right. Now Actually, I'm changing it's my tune. Gotta be that digital makes so much. I had I couldn't figure out why it was called Dig. But you're right, it's dig. It's, it's not because we dig it all? Is that not it? We it could dig be. We the dig conference. the South. Yeah, yeah, we totally dig it. We dig the South, we dig the conference. Dig it, guys. Uh, I, have no, I cannot at all remember what it is that you had asked me. <laughs> what do you do? Who are you? <laughs> Tell That us. was an easy question. Uh, my name is Jason Pfeiffer. I'm the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. 
Very nice. And what do you do as editor-in-chief? I do a whole lot of things. I... Um, I run the print magazine. Um, I sort of contribute to the direction of the brand uh, generally. I am often serving as face of brand, so I'm the guy that goes out onto TV or radio or conferences. I help uh, plan a whole bunch of stuff, our events and, you know, whatever. Um, and I host a podcast for Entrepreneur called Problem Solvers. Very nice. And you gave a speech while you were here. Can you tell us a little bit about what you talked about? I did. I, it was called, well, I don't know if this is what it was called, but I, it's called uh, How to Get Press for Your Business. <laughs> and it's a talk I do because I realized as I got into this job and started speaking to entrepreneurs that most of them have absolutely no idea what journalists do or how to reach out to them. Okay. And yet media is a tool, like any other tool, that can be used to help your business if you understand it the right way. And so... The goal of my presentation is to get people to think about journalists as people, people who need and want things and who are not there just to write your press release. Because if you approach them that way, they are not going to write your press release. But if you approach them in a way in which they see the value that you have to the readers that they serve, then they will be excited to tell your story and then you'll get what you want to. Jason, you had a lovely story on the stage about people pitching to you all the time, but missing the mark that journalists care about their customers and not the pitch. Now switching gears a bit and focusing on the business side of the house, media companies need to focus on telling stories, but also keep in mind revenue. Now with the current trends, with advertising and subscriptions, how do you see the media industry evolving? And do you specifically see the entrepreneurial magazine diversifying in any way, shape, or form? So, thank you. I think that the future of the media business is not content. Really? Ha-ha! <laughs> you, you almost dropped your mic. I did. Um, now, let me explain more. I don't think that content is going away. And by the way, I, I'm just going to use the word content because it's a nice shorthand. I hate the word content. I despise the word content. And most journalists do. It makes the thing that we're doing sound like widgets that you just kind of pump out. Uh, like people will email me and they'll, they'll be like, uh, here, I've got some fresh content for you. I hate that. So I just can't tell you how much I hate the phrase fresh content. So, okay, here's what content is. It's a relationship. Mm -hmm. People come to trust a media brand because of the content. It's the relationship that they want to form. It's the relationship that they need to form. It fills a need in their life, whatever that is. If it's entrepreneur, it's about helping them with entrepreneurism. It, men's health, it's helping them live a healthier life, whatever it is. But it cannot be the future of the business model. That is madness. Because like you said, there are only two ways to monetize that, subscriptions and advertising. And I do not think either of those are ever going to grow again or to become stable. So how do we need to think about this? I offer you Red Bull. Red Bull has done a really great job with content. Right? Red Bull has positioned themselves through their content team, a very large content team that they spend a lot of money on. They have positioned themselves as the voice and the source of information for people who are interested in extreme sports. They've done a really good job of it. Yep. Videos, a magazine, constant digital stuff, events. It's amazing. Guess what? The business of Red Bull is energy drinks, yep. right? The content does not make them significant money. Energy drinks does. So, what do we need to do? Well, we, and when I say we, I mean like the entire media. The entire media has figured out content as a relationship builder. People have a relationship with Entrepreneur Magazine because of our content. They trust us because of our content. So that means we need our energy drink that they want to buy. <laughs> and what is that energy drink going to be? It's going to be something different for every publication. It's going to it's going to have to be. And I think that there are going to be some publications that are not going to figure out what their energy drink is and they're going to go away. And then there are other ones that are going to figure out what that energy drink is, which is to say a product or service or multiple products and services that 
provide value to the audience that they have already developed, and that developed, then that audience trusts them, and therefore trusts these new products and services because of the content. That is what we're all going to need to do. We all need our energy drinks, and we need to stop focusing on chasing ad revenue that is literally never going to grow again. As like media companies are trying different uh, services, products, and all. Do you feel like it's just a growth and it's normal, or do you feel like, hey, uh, if our core is a uh, storytelling, and if we do other things as well, like, it kind of takes away from that? I don't care about taking away from it. <laughs> See, <laughs> it, I mean, listen, we just have to look at the reality of the marketplace. Media yep. did one thing for hundreds of years. We did not have to change our business model for hundreds of years. The newspapers that were sold in the 1600s and the magazines that are sold today run under the same business model, advertising. Yeah. So we have to, for really the first time, I don't know if I can say ever, but in the very long time, I agree with you. Yeah, have, do we have to start thinking differently? And any entrepreneur worth their company will tell you that you can't just hold on to something because that's the way that it's always been done. Would it be great if we were able to just continue the way like magazines in the 60s worked where there was nonstop money coming in and you were turning away advertisers and there were like bar carts rolling down the aisles and editors were drunk at noon? That would be awesome. <laughs> It'd be, I wish that we could do that, but you know what? We can't. So we can either pretend that we can somehow bring that back and we can all go down together or we can figure out something new. It's just the facts on the ground. So where can people find you online if they wanted to follow everything that's going on? Oh, I have so many ways. So first of all, let me tell you about my podcasts. There are two of them. Pessimists Archive is a personal project. It's a history of unfounded fears of innovation. So in each episode, we look at the moment that a new piece of technology was introduced and we try to understand why it freaked everybody out. So the Walkman nice. freaked everybody out. The bicycle freaked everybody out. The car freaked everybody out. Um, um, uh, recorded music freaked everybody out. Why? Why? And uh, then I have a, a show called Problem Solvers. It's for entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurs solving unexpected problems in their business. And uh, so any podcast platform, you can go download those. You can go to my website, jasonpfeiffer.com, J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R, to sign up for my newsletter, which is called The Pfeiffer Five. It's five monthly entrepreneurial insights that really stuck with me. Watch for it. It's great. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, at HeyPfeiffer. David DeWolf is the CEO of 3Pillar. He spoke at Dig South about the power of building purpose-driven software before heading out on a whirlwind speaking tour. A few days later, David took the stage at the Gartner Tech Growth and Innovation Summit to talk about how to build successful data products, and at Collision in New Orleans a few days after that to talk about disrupting the enterprise software market. In this interview, we talk about the importance of customer centricity and product development. Okay, so we're here with David DeWolf, CEO of Three Pillar Global. Welcome to Dig South. It's the end of day one. You were on a panel earlier today. How was that experience? Yeah, so the panel was great. It was a good discussion uh, about building products with purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think when we talk about purpose, different people take different lenses, but probably the most popular right now is talking about kind of purpose as mission, right? And especially about doing good in the world, which I think is all good and well. It's actually a very powerful thing. Um, and there's no doubt that customers respond to kind of this idealistic um, kind of good for society approach to product development. Um, but there were two other themes that came up that uh, we were able to talk through, uh, which is purpose is also about being clear on your objective and being intentional. Mm -hmm. um, and there are two other purposes that we have to keep in mind. It's not just about society. It's about the customer, number one, and making sure that you build purposely for your customer so that your customer uh, gets what they need out of the product um, and really has a, a true desire to use it and a reason to use it. And the second piece is then there's also a purpose for the business. Mm -hmm. and, and what I see is because of this push towards design thinking and the customer, as well as this push towards mission, too often organizations are forgetting about the very real need to make money um, and the very real need to meet your 
ROI objective. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so having that objective set where you know, here is the purpose for which I am building a product. Um, Yes, there can be the idealistic mission around it, but there also needs to be, whether that's a revenue target, a market share target, um, something very concrete that you can measure in all three of those buckets. And we can't forget the business objective as well, which is just as important in order that we can continue to build greater and greater product. We can only do that if we're healthy as an organization. So all three are important. And and I think that was... uh, kind of, for me, the biggest uh, part of the conversation that I think really needs to be said this day and age. Absolutely, yeah. And it seems like a lot of the sessions today have been focusing on that storytelling aspect of finding that customer journey to draw people in. But uh, as you say, there's the risk of becoming too idealistic. So you think that they need to focus on that, but not fully and also focus on the business outcomes? Well, I I think you can focus on it and you can be very much driven by it. Mm -hmm. But when we forget about business staples, when we forget about the fundamentals of business, we end up either building a nonprofit, uh, which is fine, well, and good, but we all know, stand back and look at your favorite nonprofits. Are they as effective Mm -hmm. as the commercial world? We all get frustrated when we give money to an organization that doesn't do a great job with it, right? So one of the great things about capitalism um, is that it, urges us forward to be more innovative, to be more efficient, and those types of things. And so focusing on those very real business targets allows us to make money so that we can reinvest. And the more that you have, the more you meet those operating targets, the more you can fulfill your mission. So I don't think by any stretch of the imagination should an organization get so focused on dollars that they forget their mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, I think mission should always come first. You need to live to your values, live to your purpose, but not at the expense of fundamentals. And I think we've gotten to a place uh, with some of this push towards the customer journey being about everything or purpose being about everything everything that we have allowed it to be at the expense of fundamentals. And I think we need to have a shift. Um, And as we do, what I have found is the best innovation in the world comes from the intersection of the customer need and the business need, because you can fuel it and Mm -hmm. it can have more and more impact over time. Makes sense. And you said innovation. And I remember one of your key talking points from the panel is the difference between innovation and invention. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So, it's a confusing point because I think a lot of people think about innovation as it relates to technology. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that technological invention or progress is is the invention itself. So technology for its own sake is about improving technology to improve technology, about discovering new things. And that's good and well, but it tends to be very academic in nature, right? Mm -hmm. It's for its own sake. Um, It's for the purpose of knowledge and learning. Innovation is different. Innovation is about finding that technology and where it fits in the world to disrupt the way we live, work, or play and how it creates very real value within the economy. And so oftentimes the best innovation actually comes from old technology applying to a new thing. Okay. Right? Um, So a lot of the innovation that we see isn't necessarily the most leading edge, cutting edge, technologically advanced thing. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's actually been baked and we've just found new use cases for it. Okay. Right. And so I think uh, not getting caught up in technology, but getting caught up in what are those areas of life that I can improve? Mm -hmm. And and this is where it starts to intersect with purpose, right? This is where we can get excited about making the world a better place, right? And, And it's not so idealistic. It's about actually finding that need that then we we can build a commercially viable product out of because we've applied technology to something that truly helps people. Absolutely. And do you have an example of something where it's not necessarily a cutting edge technology or innovation that has been applied? Yeah, sure. I mean, think of any of the unicorns today and Mm -hmm. you can probably trip over one or two easily, right? I mean, so Airbnb comes in mind. True. I mean, was there anything technologically actually so advanced that we were like, wow, when Airbnb... No. Not really. We're just using fundamental technologies that we all use day-to-day in a very new, quote, innovative way. True. Right? Yeah. Um, And so I I would say that's a great example. Um, Uber, same thing. Mm -hmm. Have there been some advances with Uber and and different things? Sure. They probably used um, geolocation better than others had in the past in some new ways. But fundamentally, having an app that can call a, a driver 
it was not new. It was a new idea. Mm-hmm. It was a new application of mobile technology for that space, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think the most, quote, innovative companies in the world are ones that often aren't using the latest and greatest technology. I mean, the classic example is when the iPhone first came out, mm-hmm. right? The iPhone was not new technology. It was a combination of technologies to create a single device, oh. right? And so it was a phone combined with an MP3 player, combined mm-hmm. with a camera, right? Where all of those existed before. It's just we put it into one device for the first time and applied new use cases to it. And so I, I think those examples kind of lead us back to the starting place where innovation doesn't always have to be about the most cutting-edge thing technologically today. Absolutely. So have you had a chance to go to any other sessions today? Uh, went, through, went to a few. I had a lot of conversations. Um, you know, I think it's interesting to see what's going on. There's a lot of conversation about blockchain. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the fundamental things I think I, I find it hilarious, actually, you go to these blockchain sessions and so often the conversation shifts very quickly to digital currency. Mm-hmm. Obviously, digital currency is built on blockchain, but there are two fundamentally different things. And yeah. I think we have to be careful about that as technologists um, to make sure that we understand the separation of them yes. um, and understand the different use cases where blockchain can be used outside of currency. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really a distributed ledger. And let's talk about how a distributed ledger which is no longer new, can be applied to other areas of life to spur innovation in other areas, not just digital currency, right? Um, there's all sorts of debates and great conversation going on about digital currency itself and will it take over the world? You know, I, I'm not one to opine on that. You know, it, it will if it will and it won't if it won't. There are a lot of smart people that think it will. There are a lot of smart people that think it won't. I, I think digital currencies as themselves will become more popular and there will be applications does it become the default currency of the world? I'm not sure. I'm not convinced yet. Um, but there, whether it's rewards and point systems or other things, there will be types of currencies that become more and more valuable for sure. And, and maybe it becomes truly an exchange currency. You know, regardless, the reality is that blockchain is still blockchain and has the potential to impact other areas. Mm-hmm. Now, there's debate over how much it will and is it really new technology? It's not as, quote, inventive as a lot of people think it might be, but it can be applied to new situations. And I think eventually there will be a use case where the innovation will not be the technology itself. It will be the application of that. That makes sense. Yeah. And we definitely want to avoid shoehorning blockchain just into digital currencies. Absolutely. And avoiding all of the new innovation we can have from it. That's exactly right. Yeah. So have you had any big takeaways from your day here? I think one of the takeaways uh, that I've been pondering, um, you know, this conference is is in Charleston, South Carolina, and a lot of people Mm -hmm. come as a destination. It's a destination city, right? True, yeah. Is it Condé Nast who always says, what a great place? And you don't often think of uh, South Carolina and Charleston as the tech hub of the world. Absolutely And, um, you know, I I think I'm taking that away, which is, you know, interesting that there are more and more small cities like Charleston throughout the world that really are embracing the digital revolution Mm -hmm. and really understanding that the digital economy is real. And you see these entrepreneurs, you see these small companies popping up and them becoming destinations, not just for tourism, but -hmm. destinations for really want to tap into uh, this innovation economy. Um, And and I think that's striking to me. You can tell that that Charleston is emerging in that. And this is really a regional conference uh, for the South um, that that they are pushing further and further into that digital economy. And I think it'll be exciting exciting um, as innovation moves to different parts of the world more and more, right? Historically, it's been in Silicon Valley and then mm-hmm. New York and Boston and, and you know, where we're from, from D.C. Some of the larger cities ha- have done a better job at monetizing these digital technologies. Um, I think the world has been catching up. And this is just a proof point for me that, that really, you know, here is a destination now. People are coming for this conference. They've been doing it for six years. Um, and and they're, they're really riding that train. Um, and so I think um, that, that's my big takeaway. It is more of the spread of the digital economy and how it truly is becoming mainstream. That's a really good takeaway. And I think a lot of people will be walking away from here thinking the same thing, thinking, you know, I should have noticed Charleston on the map a little bit more. Yeah. And what other smaller cities should I be looking to? And who doesn't want an excuse to come get Southern food, right? Exactly. I mean, unbelievable, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It's always a draw. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining us and for coming and speaking on the panel. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Julia. 
Jocelyn Mangan is the former COO of Snag, an online employment website for hourly employees that closed a 100 million funding round in February. As the chief operating officer of Snag, Jocelyn managed not only marketing and day-to-day company operations, but also the engineers and product developers for the company's technology suite. She believes it's increasingly important for top executives to oversee and interact with their product team. All right, so we're here at DigiSouth with Jocelyn Mangan, former COO of Snag. Um, you recently spoke. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were spoke, speaking on on the stage? Sure. So I gave a talk um, which is titled The New CMO. Yes. And really the topic was talking about how the pace at which technology is moving, which is faster than we can actually address it, changes everything we do. But in particular with marketing, I think it poses some interesting challenges Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, we can use technology for so much more. And yet we're, we're balancing that increase in technology with the need to also get across human stories and storytelling in a way that resonates with people almost above the noise of technology. Absolutely. Storytelling has been a huge theme. We were just talking to Meg Open of Under Armour and Jason Pfeiffer of Entrepreneur Magazine, and both of them spent about 10 minutes talking about how vital storytelling is to their brand. Yes. So I had kind of two parts to my talk that touched on that. One is a quote that I love from Danny Meyer, which is, business is all about how you make people feel. It's Mm. that easy and it's Mm. that hard. And it's one of my favorite quotes because it's true, Yeah. (laughs) right? And what makes you feel is storytelling a lot of the time. And I told another story about a YouTube video that was sent to me about the chief brand marketing officer at Uber. And she tells a story that really resonated with me. And I just, I'll never forget it. And yet we see all these other brand messages on a daily basis that we forget all the time. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. We've seen that in our business. It's really not about the capabilities that you have as a consultant, but it's the stories that you tell from your customers' successes. And that's really what gets us new clients and just gets people excited. Well, and that's the other thing we talked about a little bit is that, you know, it used to be that you would read an influencer article and that's what, you know, you'd buy this product because an influencer wrote this, you know, big, uh, or sorry, not influencer, academic would write something like, but now it actually is the users. So the reason that's happening with your consulting is because it's another user of the service who's selling it to another user. Peer to peer is one of the strongest forms of marketing now. Right. And you can't, you can't pay for that. Yeah, that's right. That's so true. That's right. Yeah. So in your talk, you talked about um, being curious. Yes. Um, but we all know that curiosity is a great trait to have. At the same time, um, unfettered curiosity means nothing ever gets done. So mm. how do you see balancing curiosity with you know, actual business outcomes and getting work done? Yeah, I think it's a really, really good and important question because if technology is moving fast and humans are having a hard time adapting, those two things can actually cause more inefficiency than we're giving it credit for. So in some ways... You know, the curiosity is also flexibility with change. So, you know, what I've found, not just in the companies I've been in, but talking to friends at other companies, is people complain often of realignments or reorganizations around certain things, but actually they're just human responses to speed of technology. And so we all kind of have to get used to that. But the other thing that you touched on that I think is critical is you should always be worried about business outcomes. Yeah. Everything you're doing should be in sponsorship, in promotion, in support of business outcomes. And so I think the important part is, is making sure that you're measuring those outcomes so that when you are making all these changes, you can see if it's working. Right, so curiosity and experimentation is great. And people do, I believe, need to get used to more change faster because technology is not going to slow down. That's right. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, So changing gears a little bit. So you were formerly working at Snag, a product company of a a product background. I'd love to hear from your perspective um, what some of the biggest challenges that uh, product companies are facing. Yes, so I think I, I touched on one which is um, the pace of technology is changing so fast that it does require some need for pivoting, flexibility, probably more often than in the past. You know, I remember I've been a product manager for a long time and we used to have projects that last three and four months. And now when code can get released every three minutes, 
right? That's a different environment. And so the biggest challenge that I've seen has usually been organizational. So it's either that, um, you know, someone's been working on something that fails and they're not pivoting fast enough away from it, or, you know, the, the groups are not working well together. So one thing I just talked about in my talk is that marketers need to be aligned with engineers because engineers aren't a department anymore. They're a foundation of every company and they're at the core of every company and they touch I can't think of a department they don't touch unless it's, you know, a non-technical, really non-technical business because it's, it's really coming through everything we do. Um, one of the biggest challenges is how to organizationally support that reality without getting in your own way. Absolutely. And how would you suggest marketing and engineering align? Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I think one is just being in the same conversation. I think it 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 really is, um, I think it's the marketer's responsibility to understand how the products get built at their company. Because mm-hmm. it's not the same way every, every, every place. So, you know, I don't think that's necessarily the responsibility of the engineers. It's the responsibility of the marketer. How do you prioritize how often do you release code? How do you measure the success of your products? Just understanding that core infrastructure and then finding a way to insert yourself into it. And that could just be, you know, they sit in the customer discovery where they watch the product teams, watch the users use the product. That could be that they're a part of the prioritization meetings because they all share, um, you know, business. Out- Everybody shares the goal of positive business outcome. And I think one of the other things they can do is define shared goals instead of separate goals. Like why should marketing's goals be totally separate? They're just trying to get more people to use the products. Guess what? So is the product team. Guess what? So is the engineering team, right? Right? So how can you have one conversation instead of four departmental conversations, I think is is a key. So we we started talking a little bit about um, things that make product companies successful. We highlighted a couple in our uh, last few minutes. Curious what other uh, activities or characteristics that you've seen in product organizations that really help them stand out either from uh, a value proposition and product perspective or even just internally among how they get work done? So I think the biggest thing that I've found value in is product discovery. Mm-hmm. Snag, we worked with a coach. I'll do a plug for her. Her name is Teresa Torres. And I described her as like a workout coach. We all know we should work out. Mm-hmm. Right. We and and I also I'll give a, an example from Open Table. You know, because you work at Open Table, it's fabulous because you use the product all the time. But actually, as a product person, it can be a crutch because I use the product as an employee of Open Table in San Francisco. Yeah. Well, I fly home to Houston and talk to my parents, and they wouldn't use it the same way. Hmm. Right. So what product discovery does, um, and there's many many methods, which is why Teresa is helpful, is it helps you avoid building the wrong thing. Right. Because if you think like the most precious kind of t- thing in the in the building is your time. And I'd argue engineer's time <laughs> is probably the most valuable. Yeah. Building the wrong thing is a real waste of money, time, energy. And yeah. finding out it doesn't work in the wild yeah. with code is, is um, more disappointing than finding it, it out with a paper prototype, right? And so um, I think one of the most successful things I've seen companies do is that they decide what to build based on watching their customers in real environments versus meeting rooms and boardrooms where, you know, executives are deciding what to do. Yeah, absolutely. Our CEO participated in a panel this morning uh, about purposeful software development. Mm. And a big part of his message was building not just the product right, but building the right product. Yes. Um, And that just is a part of our DNA and what we do at Three Pillar. Um, and that's what we're trying to get all of our customers to understand is build it and they will come is not a thing anymore. Yep. It's just, you know, the speed of technology has just uh, killed that. And so yes. really it's about building what your customers needs and building for outcomes. Um, and that's really what sets you apart in the market. Yeah. And there's um, there's kind of two leaders in that space that I've worked with. Another one is Jeff Patton. And so Jeff Patton will come into a company and do like a week-long workshop of product discovery because it doesn't necessarily come naturally. It needs to be taught and then it needs to get practiced and it needs to get practiced on a regular basis, which is why I compare it to working out um, and why I think, you know, the combination of having like a Jeff Patton in addition to a Teresa Torres working with teams, then it instills the culture of product discovery. And then the value of that, you start to invite the other departments in. So now sales is watching this discovery learning and the CEO is watching and now everybody's benefiting from the information that basically is just about your customers. Right. So you've held a bunch of different roles. You've seen a a lot of different things out in the market. I'd love to ask, what are you most excited about? Kind of, you know, the future of technology. There's lots of different buzz in a lot of different places. 
what are you really excited to kind of work on next or see next? So um, I am really excited about the focus on diversity of thinking and the representation in business at a diverse level. And I think that extends even beyond, you know, some of the recent conversations around gender, which is one I'm passionate about, but also skills-based. We, ha- we talked about a little bit in, the, in that meeting. The more we get away from departments and titles and get into the world of skills, I think that's a good world to be in because, again, like what does marketing really mean anymore or product and why are they different? You know, and it used to be like sales was this really distinct thing, but now it's super combined with marketing. So like, I think what I'm most excited about is to see how that evolves over time. Um, Not just how we, you know, increase diversity in the workplace, but also how we define work and what needs to get done versus the department you sit in, which right now, as I talk to people across companies, seems to be one of the biggest blockers. And that's just humans getting in their own way. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Great. So where can people find you online? So I think the easiest place to find me is LinkedIn. That's probably where I am the most. Yes. I also do have a Twitter, Twitter handle. Cool. So, What's your Twitter handle in um, case people want to know? Yes. At JC Mangan. Awesome. Easy enough. Perfect. Easy well, enough. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank this you for great. having me. Yeah. Us. Thanks for having me. Of course. That's a wrap on day one from the floor at Dig South. Thank you very much for listening and many thanks to all the guests who took time out of their schedules to talk with us. If you want to hear more from the floor of Dig South, we're putting the day two interviews into a bonus episode. So check your podcast feed for the next episode from Dig South. The Innovation Engine podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www.3pillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And we post extensive show notes for each episode on the Three Pillar website at 3pillarglobal.com slash podcast. That's three with the number three. Don't forget, we also have an iOS app for the Innovation Engine. Search for the Innovation Engine on the App Store from your iOS devices. Last but not least, we're always striving to improve here on the Innovation Engine podcast, and we get asked often, who listens to it? We can see from our analytics that a pretty healthy number of you do listen, but raw download numbers don't do much to help us learn who out there is listening, what your day-to-day jobs are like, and what kinds of topics or which specific guests you might like to hear from. So if you'd like to help make the Innovation Engine a little bit better, please take a few short minutes out of your day and shoot me a quick email with some of that information. Will.Sherlin at 3PillarGlobal.com is my email address. Also, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.